0: Luke 21, verses 25 and 6, say, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. And that says this, people fainting with fear and foreboding for what is coming on the world. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. About seven years ago, my oldest daughter was in first grade. And I was picking her up from school one day. And before I could even begin to ask her, like I normally do, hey, how was your day? She went right into fainting with fear mode. She'd obviously been holding it in all day long. Obviously been holding it in all day long because as soon as the door closed, she just let out with it. Fainting with fear mode, went run amok just like that. Daddy, we learned about how the polar ice caps are all melting and we're going to lose all the major cities on the coasts and thousands of animal species are going to die. And if we don't learn how to swim, Daddy, we're going to die. We're gonna, I don't want to die, Daddy. I don't want to die. That's, I mean, she was. This was an issue at that moment of life or death. She was instantly hysterical, no exaggeration, sitting in the seat next to me, sobbing because this was life or death. <laughs> Poor thing, by the way, gets all of her drama from her mother. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you listening on audio, there is a pen that came from the second row. <laughs> a pen slash tomato. Actually, if you've known me for about two minutes, uh, you know that the emotional spaz in the family is standing right here. (laughs) Now that we have rectified that. So here's this first grader. This first grader who was traumatized because if we didn't stop driving our cars and using electricity and uh, stop flushing our toilets so much, um, life as we knew it would be over. For her at that moment, this was life or death. And listen, these aren't pretend issues. But Luke 21 points out something that's true. People are fainting with fear and foreboding because of what is coming on the world. It's everywhere you turn lately. And these aren't pretend issues. I don't mean to sound like I'm making light of it because I don't intend to. Just this week, the U.S. State Department issued travel warnings because of fear of terrorism being heightened. Uh, If you're on social media at all, not an hour goes by without a dozen people on both my Facebook and Twitter feeds posting something about how the Muslims are coming to get us and they may or may not be coming in the form of Syrian refugees. I came across this cartoon earlier this week. What can we do to lessen the grip of fear of terrorism? The dude just turns off the TV. That's what it feels like sometimes. What's my recourse? Turn it off. Just to turn it off. Luke twenty-one, twenty-six. people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Some of you probably remember the ecological crises of the 1970s. At the time, if we, by the time we reached the, the mid 80s or the 90s, we were supposed to be out of oil and food and space. Overpopulation and strain on global resources were supposed to make the world an apocalyptic desert by now. Some of you lived through that. Some of us learned about it in history class. In 1970, there was a Harvard biologist who said this, and I'm quoting, Civilization will end within 15 or 30 years unless immediate action is taken against problems facing mankind. Here's a picture of the gas crisis in the early 70s. Uh, Some of you probably remember sitting in lines like this for hours. You could only go on certain days. There was gas rationing. There was no, by the way, youngsters, no swipe and go. You didn't get your receipt. You actually had to go into the the gas station to get your receipt, I know, right? Annoying. Well, here's this uh, guy here sitting there waiting in line, like, hello, I gotta mow my lawn, so let's hurry up. Now, before these modern examples though, we could go after item after item like this. That was this kind of thing. It was nuclear war with the Soviets before this. For anyone who's the age of 50ish or so or older, you probably grew up doing nuclear bomb drills, hiding under your desk in case the Soviets would attack. You remember these things, right? You probably grew up thinking there is a Soviet missile with your hometown written on the side of it. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. And we could go on and on and give example after example throughout history of apocalypses that never were. And don't get me wrong, these aren't pretend issues. These are real issues. We don't intend to make light of it or or minimize it. These are real threats. Let's talk about just terrorism, for example. We all know the lesson from 9-11. Terrorism is not just some far-off Middle Eastern or European problem. This happened on home soil. I have a friend who was killed in the World Trade Center attack. I, I get it. So I don't intend to make light of it. But here's what we cannot forget as followers of Jesus, no matter how bad it gets, and that's verbiage we often use, it's getting so bad, no matter how bad it gets, God is in charge of history and the superpowers of this world are not. God is a sovereign and he is taking the world somewhere. He has acted decisively in it and he will finish what he started. And for us, living and acting from the assumption that the world's gone to hell in a handbasket may make us feel good temporarily, but it can easily become a fear driven way of thinking about the world that tempts us to disengage. It can easily become a fear-driven way of thinking about the world that tempts us to disengage from it. And friends, fear and disengagement are not marks of a follower of Christ who is confident that God is sovereign and is heading somewhere. We cannot let fear, we cannot let disengagement keep us from doing what He's called us to do. And listen, I I know there's plenty to be worried about. But God's in control. In fact, he even knew, he is sovereign enough that he even knew we would be tempted to shrink back in fear. Jesus actually addresses this very fear in Luke 21 that we just read. And even the people back in Jesus' day were speculating like we do about how terrible the world was getting. And the Jews' Facebook feeds were filled with people fainting with fear and foreboding. And Jesus' own disciples were caught up in it. The, the Gospels here tell us about a time when they're in the temple and they're looking up and they're gawking about this amazing temple in the middle of Jerusalem. This was the center of their religious world. In fact, it was the center of their, their world, period. And they're in this temple with Jesus, ooing and awing about how amazing it was when Jesus said, of all things, all this stuff right here, all this, it'll all be destroyed. I mean, can you imagine that moment? Wait, what? They couldn't believe what they were hearing. And so what they did, of course, is they all went off and started a commune and uh, hoarded food and had a weapons cache together and decided to just sort of disengage. Of course, that's not what they did. Some Christians actually did. Some Christians did do that. And we know that from history. But these guys stuck with the program. These guys stuck with the program and lived with a confidence that engaged in the mission to which God had called them instead of disengaging and shrinking back in fear. Because listen, that's what lies in the balance. Engaging in mission or shrinking back from fear. And this was a moment for them in Luke 21 that could have been a moment of fear. Let's go ahead and see how that plays out here. The temple here being destroyed, as he predicted in A.D. 70, it was destroyed. And this was a moment that could have been a fear kind of thing for them, but they decided to engage. Let's go ahead and pick it up at 5 through 9. Pick up the story with me there, Luke 21, 5 through 9. This is Luke's little introduction here. Pretty much everything else we read will be from Jesus. Verse 5, this is Luke here, says, And while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. They were ooing and awing at the temple. And Jesus said this, verse 6, As for these things that you see, these things, that phrase, two-word phrase, is an important word that happens throughout. Um, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Everything you see here will be destroyed, he said. I mean, can you imagine what they thought at that moment? <laughs> like... Security. Crazy guy here in the temple courtyard. Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is like saying, Statue of Liberty, gone. Washington Monument, obliterated. And to the Jews, this was like saying, everything that you hold sacred is going to be uprooted. I mean, this is crazy stuff that Jesus is predicting here. We can hardly emphasize this point enough. And it's central to understanding what the story is about here. So they asked him, as a response, verse 7. This is important. They asked him, teacher, when will these things be? There's that phrase, these things again. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when, here's the phrase again, these things are about to take place? Now, we're going to spend some time here on verse 7 because it's an important part of the story here. Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? They're basically saying, "Lord, when are you going to come and set things right?" This is the moment in the story where we identify with the disciples because they're freaking out. Jesus has just said all this amazing stuff in which you've placed your faith, this this whole system and structure of sacrifices it's all coming down. It's all coming down. People fainting with fear and foreboding. This was the disciples at this point. They're asking the same question we ask when we get scared for our security. Lord, how long until, how long until you're going to fix all this? Because everything's messed up. Everything is messed up. <laughs> and, I, and I'm sitting here wondering, hello, Lord, When are you going to fix them? Because clearly we are not able to. Clearly we cannot do this and fix it ourselves. This is the hunger for God to act. When you've reached the end of yourself and you realize you're not good enough to fix you. When we've reached the end of ourselves and we realize we are not good enough to fix ourselves which is a moment which is a moment that we all will get to <laughs> if you haven't yet it's just some sort of combination of pride and or youth that makes you live under this illusion that you or we are able to do this and fix ourselves i mean if you're not there yet it's just because it's some combination of pride or youth eventually we all reach this place when we say with David in Psalm 13, how how long, Lord, how long till you fix this? Because no amount of human ingenuity or good engineering or thorough planning is going to do it. When you start to understand that and experience that, you start to have the hunger for God to do something. And until you've gotten to that place that's the end of yourself, it's the end of us, it's the end of all the planning in the world, all the human ingenuity we can muster, all of the thorough engineering that could possibly happen, until you've finally gotten to the end of all that and say, there really is no way for us to fix this. Only then will you experience. How long, O Lord, till you fix this? Because I know I can. And so this is a moment here at verse 7. It's a critical moment in the text. It's a critical moment for the disciples, and it's a critical moment here for us. And it can, it, it can be tempting to read verse 7 as a sort of gloom and doom kind of question. When are you going to destroy all this? But, but really there's a ray of hope here that's in verse 7, and it's part of why we're going to spend a lot of time here on verse 7. We'll pick it up after this, but this question here in verse 7 may not be as negative as we first assume. Now this word here for sign is important in verse 7 because it's actually a ray of hope. The word sign can mean a picture or a symbol or a proof of something. Those of you who are note takers, the word sign is a picture or a symbol or a proof of something. And it's a sign of something of greater significance than the sign itself. That's why it's significant. It signifies something of greater importance than the sign itself. Now, two things about signs in the Bible before we move on. Number one, it's important to know that signs do not give us a calendar of events, but they give us a picture of the moment. Signs do not give us a calendar of events or a timeline. They give us a picture of the moment. That's why they're called signs and not clocks. Signs and not calendars. A lot of people get this wrong. So signs do not give us a picture, uh, do not give us a calendar of events. They give us a picture of the moment. The second thing about this is the greater significance to which signs point, and this is key for us, the greater significance to which signs point is the action of God in the world. Signs point to God acting to right the wrongs and to uproot evil. And so we put these two ideas together And here it is in a sentence for the note takers. Signs give us pictures of God acting to right wrongs. Signs give us pictures of God's acting to right wrongs and to uproot evil. So signs in the Bible give us pictures of God acting to right wrongs and uproot evil. Sign language, signs language like this is all over uh, the Bible. It's all over the Bible. Signs, signs, everywhere, signs. So the disciples here are asking Jesus to tell them what to look for as proof of God acting in the world. It's like saying, okay, Lord, tell us how you're going to act. What's it going to look like? They probably also wanted to know when, but as we just talked about, signs don't really tell that a whole lot. So, so he's saying, I will tell you what it looks like Because they're asking the question, how are you going to act to fix things? Because we want to be a part of it. And that's the key. They're not just asking, how can I avoid, but how can I engage? That's what the disciples are actually asking here. So Jesus has just predicted the world's going to be turned upside down. Jerusalem's going to fall. He predicts that later on. Not just the temple, but all of Jerusalem. That happens in AD 70. And he says this, verse 8. Let's keep moving here. He says, when this happens, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Don't listen to them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, tumults is just an old timey word for noise, confusion. It's not, sort of the, the sound of disorder. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. If you're a highlighter, or a note taker, a circler, do not be terrified is a key one to circle. Do not be terrified. Everybody's going to have their answers about when these signs will be and what it's going to look like. Don't listen to them. Second half of verse 9. Don't listen to them. For these things, there's that phrase again, the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, which he's about to predict in the coming verses and which did happen in AD 70, these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. The temple will fall. The city will fall. uh, But the end end, the end of time, will not be then. So he's basically saying, so don't freak out. Don't freak out. When you hear of reasons to fear and are tempted to give in to that fear, tempted to give in to the idea that the world's gone to hell in a handbasket, do not be terrified. It's right there, right there in verse 9. Do not be terrified. Stay strong. I'm coming back. Now jump down to 25 to 28 where Jesus basically says the same kinds of things as He just did in 8 and 9. Verses 25 and following. He says, there will be signs. Remember, signs give us pictures of God acting to set things straight. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. These are going to be earth-shattering signs and people will freak out, but that's nothing new, he says. These signs point to God acting in the world and don't forget don't forget 21.8-9, which says many are going to say the time is at hand. This is what it looks like, but don't listen to them, he says. Don't forget that. So Jesus will say this again in a couple of verses, but back to verses 25 and 6. These signs in sun and moon and stars point to God acting in the world to set things straight. And hear how he's going to act. Here's how he's going to act. Verse 27. And then, meaning after in general terms, not in specific terms. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when will that happen? After the things, after these things. Jesus has been describing to the disciples all through 8 through 24. After the destruction of the temple, after the fall of Jerusalem, and also after the good news is preached to the Gentiles, which he just said in verse 24 there, which means, and here's what's important for us, two things. Two things. A, Jesus has not yet returned. And B, we live in the time of people fainting with fear and foreboding. Those things we know. Jesus has not yet returned for the second time. And we live in the time of people fainting with fear and foreboding. He's not back yet and evil is still wreaking havoc in the world. And here are Jesus' instructions for living in that world. Look at 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He says, now when these things, there's that phrase, Again, and these things is not just talking about the second coming. He's talking about the whole thing, destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, good news being preached to the Gentiles, and everything leading up to the second coming. We know that this isn't just about the second coming because these things happens in verses 6, 7, 9, and then here down in 28. When these things begin to take place, Here's the instruction. Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Buckle up, get ready, be prepared. Live from confidence that knows that God is going to do what He promised just like He did in Jesus the first time. And He's going to act to set things straight. The answer the answer to people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming on the world, the answer is, is Jesus' words to us in verses 9 and 28. Do not be terrified. Straighten up and raise your heads. Do not be terrified. Straighten up and raise your heads. Now, (laughs) perhaps you're sitting there thinking, okay, I like it. Sounds good. Do not be terrified. Straighten up. Raise your heads. That's all good and well, Scott. I like it. But it's the first Sunday of the Advent, the Christmas season. The Christmas decorations are up all around us. All around the worship center. We lit the Advent candles. What does Luke 21 have to do with Christmas? I'm glad you asked. Well, I'm glad I asked for you. What does Luke 21 have to do with Christmas? Christmas is a sign. The birth of Jesus is the opening scene of God coming to fix the world. It is act one in God moving to right the wrongs and to uproot evil. A lot of us still live as if we're waiting for Him to begin to do that. Don't we? In fact... As you think about it, Christmas is the most decisive act in all of history. It's the most decisive sign. It's the most decisive sign in all of history that God is already acting to set things straight. Jesus came for the reason of righting the wrongs. And because of Christmas, if you're not a believer... Because of Christmas, God can right the wrongs in your very life today. You don't have to wait for Him to do it some other time. That's the message of Christmas. Christmas is that salvation is available now because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Christmas is the opening, the opening act of that sign. If you already know Jesus... Let me say it this way. What other sign are you waiting for in order to engage with what God's doing to right wrongs? Are you needing more? Christmas was God engaging with the world in the person of Jesus. And, and if Christmas was God engaging with the world in Jesus, then why don't we do the same? We have all the tools, all the power in the here and now that we need to engage people with the life of Jesus. So Christian, you are called to engage in doing the same thing God did in Jesus in the first place. Which means you can live with a posture of hope and confidence no matter what's going on around you. You can know that when you act in mission for the sake of the gospel, it's going to be used by God for His glory. Let me say it this way. You don't prepare for earth-shattering events and for the return of Jesus simply by hoarding and prepping. You prepare by engaging the world with gospel mission. Which means, don't be terrified. Straighten up and raise your heads. Get engaged with what God's already been doing in the world. Christmas is the sign of the beginning of that mission for us. We need believers who are engaged in gospel mission, doing what God did in Jesus, taking Jesus to those who need Him. That's what it means to straighten up and to raise your heads. So ask yourself a few questions. Am I reacting to circumstances with fear such that I disengage from gospel mission? Am I reacting to circumstances from fear such that I disengage from gospel mission? Or this question Am I more interested in knowing what's going on than I am doing something about it? Knowledge can be disengagement if it's not accompanied by action. Am I more interested in knowing what's going on than I am doing something? About it. Am I motivated more by a desire for security of my kingdom than I am for a desire to extend God's kingdom? Am I motivated more by a desire to secure my own kingdom than I am to extend God's kingdom? Christmas is God acting decisively in the world calling us to engage and saying, you can do this. I've helped you. I'm showing you what this is like. Don't be terrified. Straighten up. Raise your heads. Let's pray together.